Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up? This is your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Every rivalry, every rematch, every rookie debut, every game revealed. The 2024 NFL schedule release, presented by Verizon, coming in May. Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL+. Plus. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Plus. Visit nfl.com slash schedule release to learn more. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Weird House Cinema. This is Rob Lamb. And this is Joe McCormick. And today we're going to be taking a look at a 1954 science fiction movie called Devil Girl from Mars. A movie about people who are obsessed with liquor, who in fact are in many cases even named after liquors, and who uh, gather in a rural inn in Scotland to be attacked by an evil Martian boss lady who wants to kidnap and dominate Scottish men. Uh, Yes, that's right. Fans of Weird House Cinema may feel an inkling of of a memory that this is in fact the second movie we've done with this exact plot. The plot of women from another planet within our solar system are running out of men and must come to Earth to steal our precious Earth hunks. (laughs) Uh, The other one was the lighthearted Mexican romantic musical horror comedy Ship of Monsters from 1960. And that one was such a delight. I I still remember that so fondly. I think Devil Girl from Mars is also a delight, but in a very different way. Ship of Monsters is, uh, is clever, spunky, charming, intentionally funny, and made with this infectious sense of whimsy. Devil Girl from Mars is the exact opposite. It is made hilarious by virtue of its absurd self-seriousness. Yeah, yeah. This is not a a lighthearted musical romp. 
<laughs> but it, it's uh, it's still a lot of fun and has some great design uh, work in it because that was one of the things we loved about 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 the the, the ship of monsters it has some great monster designs some great costumes mm. and uh, we we have we have some of that going on in Devil Girl from Mars as well. But also, there is no character in Devil Girl from Mars like Lalo Gonzalez in Ship of Monsters, you know, with the mm. twinkle in his eye and the funny songs right. and all that. No, this is a movie mostly about men who are very serious about staying on Earth. Yeah, and none of the male performers are actually that interesting, <laughs> either in their <laughs> in, in their careers or uh, or in their performances here. At least I didn't find them so. But the, but, but, uh, the, the female performers are pretty great. Uh, the titular Devil Girl from Mars, I think, is clearly the star of the show. Uh, my initial reaction to this, when I started watching it, I got about 20 minutes in and I was like, oh, I don't know if this is all that great. Maybe this movie is really going to be kind of a drag. But then the moment the Martian shows up, the movie kicks into high gear immediately. Yeah, I agree. You warned me about the first 20 minutes and the first 20 minutes of this film are indeed quite slow. Um, and, and that are not all that fantastic. So, um, uh, so, so definitely know that going into the film. But we mentioned Scottish. Uh, as much as anything is purely a Scottish film, I, I guess this is kind of our first Scottish film on Weird House Cinema, right? I can't think of another one. And it's also, it's not incidentally Scottish. It's not just like made by Scots. This is very much set in Scotland. Right, right. I, I think you can you can maybe get into the production credits and say like, well, it's more basically a British production, basically an English yeah. production. Uh, but yeah, a lot of Scottish uh, talent involved in this picture and set in Scotland. Right. Uh, this film also has a very interesting indirect role in the history of science fiction literature because it was apparently an early point of inspiration, uh, a sort of anti-inspiration for the great science fiction author Octavia Butler. I found a transcript of a talk she delivered at MIT in 1998 about the role of uh, media like movies and TV in the history of sci-fi. Um, and she she goes over a bunch of different topics in the speech, but one of the first things she does is is talk about seeing this movie when she was a kid. So I want to read her quote from the speech. She says, It's impossible to begin to talk about myself in the media without going back to how I wound up writing science fiction, and that is by watching a terrible movie. The movie was called Devil Girl from Mars, and I saw it when I was about 12 years old, and it changed my life. It was one of those old 1950s movies in which the beautiful Martian woman arrives on Earth to announce that all of the Martian men have died off, and there are a bunch of man-hungry women up there, and the Earth men don't want to go. And as I was watching this film, I had a series of revelations. The first was that, geez, I can write a better story than that. And then I thought, gee, anybody can write a better story than that. And my third thought was the clincher. Somebody got paid for writing that awful story. So I was off and writing, and a year later I was busy submitting terrible pieces of fiction to innocent magazines. <laughs> I found this story so beautiful. Yeah, it's a, it's a, that's fun. I wasn't aware of, of this uh, connection, and uh, and and indeed, this is essentially, I think, one of the the things that I've always enjoyed about films of this nature. Not that I mean, there have been times where I've been inspired to write something based on uh, on, uh, on on a on a, a, a less than stellar plot in a film or something, but more often than not, it's just like 
you're watching a film, there are spaces in it, spaces that, yes, that it's not only like, could this be improved, but what if this were, was improved? And so and there'd be, there's this like, there's this film, there's this skeleton within the film, and then you sort of apply the meat to that skeleton with your own imagination, either in a, in a, in a product-based um, creative endeavor or just in the mindscape of enjoying a film. Totally. I I have long been of the opinion that if you're trying to study a creative art, you can learn just as much or even more by studying bad examples of that art form as you can from studying good examples. Like when you see the bad ones, it gives you a kind of analytical confidence. You can understand how and when things aren't working. Yeah. Now, there's a lot that does work in this film, though, at least from a from a design standpoint. Uh, as we'll get into, there's a, there's 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 at least one amazing costume. There's a, there's some cool sets. There's a, there's a cool robot, and and there are some times where there's a lot of techno babble, as we'll discuss. But occasionally, as our alien visitor is talking about conditions back home and laying down a little um, world building, uh, some of it does it you know kind of gets you gets or at least got my mind rolling. It's like I wonder what this this gender war was like. How did all the yeah. Martian men die? You know. And, you know, they're not they're not filling in all the details for you, but they're giving you like a few visuals, some some sights and sounds, some ideas. And then your brain kind of sketches in the rest of it. And, uh, and that's that's something I always enjoy about a film like this. Totally. I was actually I was tempted to start asking genuinely interested questions about the war of the sexes that took place on Mars. I was like, well, were there like were there like people on Mars who fell in love and they were like traitors to their to their side in the war of the sexes? I, I don't know. Yeah, there, it raises a lot of questions. You probably shouldn't think too, <laughs> too literally about it all. I know that this isn't the only work of fiction to, to contemplate such a thing. So I guess, you know, metaphorically, at least it. Uh, it, it's it's useful in um, in fiction. You know, th- this plot differs somewhat from the uh, premise of Ship of Monsters. In Ship of Monsters, the aliens, uh, or one of the aliens, it comes from Venus. And the problem is that on Venus, the men all destroyed each other with mm. atomic wars. So, so the men, they got nuclear weapons and they killed all the other men. So Venus has no men left. So it was an intra-sex dispute. The men killed each other on, on Venus. In this movie, it is that the women of Mars went to war with the men of Mars and killed them. Mm. I don't know if that's significant anyway. <laughs> Maybe not. <laughs> well, I guess she is supposed to have sort of a Black Widow kind of vibe to her. In fact, there is a part rather clumsily where one of the ch- the child characters, what's his name, Tommy? Tommy, yes. Ta- Tommy's like, you're like that spider in the uh, that my dad sees in the barn or something like that. You know, basically yeah. saying, oh, you're like a Black Widow spider. And it's kind of like, yeah, that's, yeah, that's part of what they're going for with the black costume and, you know, this, and it's kind of a, a, a trope and a stereotype of like a feminine power in, in films like this. Yeah, I think the character is written in a way that is supposed to strike terror in the hearts of a 1950s male in the way that she is, at least I think the way she's supposed to be received is as like very beautiful, but also very like cold and rational and, and calculatingly evil. Yeah, and it's definitely portrayed in a way that is, I would say, um, what sexually ahead of her time. Um, <laughs> yeah. Like I was uh, reading about this this film in uh, 
In Michael Weldon's Psychotronic Books that summarizes this, he uh, writes, quote, The alien herself is a real vision in boots, black tights, padded shoulders, cape, and a shiny black skull cap. The stuffy British males actually want to stay in England. <laughs> Which is great. Though not in England, they are in Scotland. I guess a couple of them are from England and stuck in Scotland and others are from Scotland. But whatever the case, yeah, they, for some reason, do not want to return to Mars with her and become part of the, like a, a captive earthling uh, breeding program. Right. But then, I mean, I was also thinking this whole time, I was like, like if they were excited to go, they, they would get to Mars and they'd find out that their participation in the breeding program involves being like hooked up in a tank somewhere yeah, yeah. <laughs> and having their brain removed or something. Um, so, uh, which would I think would have been fitting. That would have been a nice, um, like, I don't know if that would be a, maybe be a 90s Outer Limits uh, ending. Oh, that would be a good twist if like the character who goes is a very like overeager young man. Um <laughs> But uh, I was thinking the other twist, given that like they didn't, the Martians didn't realize Earth was going to have a thick atmosphere. So when they got here, you know, they they had trouble landing. It makes me think, well, what if they get the Earthlings back to Mars and they don't realize that Earthlings need to breathe oxygen? So as soon as they get there, it's just suffocation. Ah, we got to go back for more now. I think we've already done the elevator pitch, so maybe we can skip that. But we've got to hear some trailer audio. All right, let's do it. We saw this with our own eyes, an object the like of which we had never seen before, a frightening, strange shape descending from outer space with relentless purpose. Where did it come from, and what did it want of us? Hello, hello, it's an aircraft to the like nothing I've ever seen before, hello! What do you mean? Hello, hello! It's like something from another planet! Do not try to follow me. You cannot get help. Around this house, I've drawn an invisible walls through which no one may pass. Here is a news reporter with a world-shattering story. A girl trying to escape from her past. The scientist trapped in spite of his knowledge. And here also is the barmaid hiding a murderer's secret. A murderer with a life already forfeit. And introducing the devil girl from Mars herself. Get back on fire. You fool. Get back! Shoot, man, shoot! All right, all right, sounds pretty good. Uh, let's see. So there are a bunch of places you can watch this one. I think I, I just streamed it on Amazon. Yeah, I I rented it through through Prime. You can stream or buy it wherever you get your digital movies. It also looks like you can stream it uh, uh, via Film Movement, uh, Flix Fling, uh, some other places. And uh, I should also point out that uh, yeah, there there have been some basic physical releases as well. But also Bridget and Mary Joe covered it on riff tracks so oh. I, I haven't actually experienced their riff of the film but I've, I've very much enjoyed bridget and mary joe's uh riffing in the past so i bet they do a good job with this one there's a there's a there's a lot of stuff to uh, to have fun with here yeah i've got to watch that now all right well let's get into the various humans mostly scottish humans involved in the creation of this picture all right starting at the top we have director david mcdonald 
born 1904 and died in 1983. Scottish-born director who uh, at one point worked under Cecil B. DeMille in mm. the U.S. as a, a production assistant. This would have been like the late 1920s and I guess early 30s, uh, you know, basically um, an apprenticeship before returning uh, back to the U.K. He worked with uh, the Crown Film Unit during World War II to produce morale-boosting pictures. And I've seen this film referred to as a career low point. Uh, and certainly he seems to have maybe been more successful during his lifetime with various other film and TV projects, most of which I'm not familiar with. Uh, I don't think he did much in the way of sci-fi or horror outside of this film, for instance. His most noteworthy films seem to have been 1947's The Brothers, 1948's Christopher Columbus, and the 1957 swashbuckler The Moonraker. The Moonraker? Yeah, no, no connection, or at least, um, I don't know, maybe, maybe Moonraker has something to do with the plot of this 57 swashbuckler. I'm not sure. So when I was watching the credits for this movie, one of the weirdest things I noticed was the uh, credit indicating that this is somehow based on a play for the stage. Yeah, this was weird. This was, <laughs> it was similar to something we encountered with Dr. X, right? Yeah. But in this one, yeah, you, you, you have the, the credit that reads, uh, uh, like the credit for a play based on the play by John C. Mather and James Eastwood. And then James Eastwood also has a screenplay credit, uh, which, because at first when I was looking at just how it was listed on IMDb, I was like, well, maybe they say play, but they mean screenplay. No, it seems more more clear that this was a play and then it was adapted into a screenplay. Okay. Yeah, I don't know. This is Mather's only film credit, while Eastwood also worked on the screenplay for such films as 1955's The Case of the Red Monkey and 1956's Beyond Mombasa, which has Christopher Lee in it, of a young Christopher Lee, uh, but it starred seemingly mostly just a shirtless Cornell Wilde and then also Donna Reed. Oh, but let's not bury the lead. If there is one reason to watch this movie, it is our villain, played by Patricia Lafon. That's right. Uh, she plays Naya. This is our Martian visitor. Elefan lived 1919 through 2014. And uh, yeah, this, uh, this, is a, this is a really fun role of our vamping space lord here. And it's fitting because her biggest film role outside of this, uh, and I guess probably being fair, probably her biggest screen role period was playing <laughs> Empress Pompeia in MGM's sword and sandal blockbuster Quo Vadis from 1951. That was a film that had Robert Taylor, uh, Peter Ustinov in it, and also an uncredited role as a chariot driver. We have Christopher Lee. He, Christopher Lee is just in the background, creeping around, uncredited with a goatee, or sometimes credited in a lot number of pictures from this era. Uh, this movie, I don't know if it's primarily about Nero, but it's um, Nero is a major character in it, Emperor mm -hmm. Nero, and I think she plays a queen of rome is that right oh yes she's queenly yeah uh, you can look up okay. uh, footage and stills from it she's in that she's decked out in gold and in this elaborate hairdo uh and but she has that that look on her face she's got that smirk and those eyes and i i, I do have to say like you, if you look up images from devil girl from mars or probably any of her performances yes uh, stunning outfit, stunning screen presence, but you're missing it. You're missing out on all the nuances if you don't see her alive in the scene because she, her 
her sneer has a life all its own. She's using her her eyebrows in very expressive ways. It's a it's it's a wonderful performance. Yeah, I, I mean, in some ways, you would say it's an a, it's a very emotionally flat performance. Like she's mm-hmm. supposed to play like a very like unfeeling, uh, like a cold, imperious, unfeeling creature, but she is very expressive in like the way she raises her eyebrows at the pathetic attempts at heroism by Earth men. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like sometimes you hear a criticism of a villain role and say, well, this is a real mustache twirling villain role, meaning yeah. that, yes, it's leaning into a whole bunch of stereotypes and, and tropes reg- regarding a, you know the, the particular classic cinematic villain. and this Over is, the top evil, yeah. Yeah, and this is very much a similar case. But the thing is, when a mustache is, is, uh, is twirled just right on screen, um, it's, it's satisfying. So th- this is definitely a performance that satisfies. Yes, this is a, a pencil-thin eyebrow-twirling role. Yes. So Lafon also appeared in 23 Paces to Baker Street in 56. That had Van Johnson and Estelle Winwood in it. She was an actor of stage and screen, and she also seems to have had some connections to the London, Paris, New York fashion world. I love her. Every time she, she – it's like um, – you know, it's like Poochie. It's like every time uh, Naya was not on screen, pe- uh, characters should be asking, where is Naya? When is she coming back? I felt the same way. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, I'm going to mention some of these male performers, uh, though, again, they're the least interesting part about the film for the most part. You have uh, Hugh McDermott playing Michael, a journalist. Uh, this actor lived 1906 through 1972. Scottish actor, also no- known for Pimpernel Smith from 41 and The Flying Swan from 1965. I'm not familiar with either of those pictures. He plays a loudmouth journalist who I think is supposed to be likable, but he is not. He comes off as an absolutely insufferable jerk. Yeah. But hey, now we have um, another of the female players in this uh, film, and it's a, it's a really good one. We have Hazel Court playing Ellen, a fashion model. You know, I haven't introduced this concept yet, but the beginning of this movie is sort of like the prologue to the Canterbury Tales, where it's just a gathering of all of these randos into an inn somewhere and Mm -hmm. uh, finding out all about like, why is this person here? Oh, it's a surprise that they showed up. And she, she is also like sort of an odd puzzle piece amongst all the others here. She's like a, 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 a fancy London fashion model. Who's all glitz and glam. She drinks tomato juice notably. And people repeatedly point this out throughout the movie. In fact, I think they even refer to her sometimes as tomato juice girl and I, and I think she's meant to be taken in in the situation of the film as sort of a gym amongst the rough pebbles yeah yeah uh, so yeah it's a it's a it's a fun it's a fun performance I, I feel like she uh, she breathes a, a lot of, of life and character into this uh, into this role um, yeah. pro- probably more than was necessary and yes. also in a way that lets you that gives you a, a hint of what's to come because a uh, you know, British actor here but also essentially a horror queen of the late 50s, early 60s. Uh, She'd go on to become a star of Hammer Horror Films, and she also worked with the likes of Roger Corman. Her credits include The Curse of Frankenstein from 1957, The Mask of the Red Death from 64, The Man Who Could Cheat Death in 1959, Dr. Blood's Coffin in 61, and also 1963's The Raven. On TV, she appeared on both The Twilight Zone and Thriller, and I suspect we'll discuss her once again in an upcoming Halloween selection for Weird House Cinema. Uh, mm. Her final film was 1981's The Final Conflict, in which she had basically a cameo. But this was the this was the omen picture that had Sam Neill playing a grown-up Damien. 
Oh, okay. So it's called the Final Conflict, but it's all it's the Omen Three, right? It's like the Omen yeah. Three colon the Final Conflict. Yeah, or sometimes I think it's just called the Final Conflict. I, I don't know. No, you're right. Yeah, it's both. I think the demonic Sam Neill becomes president of the United States. <laughs> I think something like that. I don't. I don't think I ever saw that one. I think I only saw the first one. Yeah. All right, uh, but but she's not the only exciting uh, female presence in the the picture. We also have Adrian Corey, who plays Doris, a barmaid. Uh, so Corey lived nineteen thirty one through two thousand sixteen. Scottish born actor, known for her roles, uh, probably best known for her roles in Doctor Zhivago and A Clockwork Orange, along with such uh, films as nineteen sixty five's A Study in Terror. This is a film that had John Neville as Sherlock Holmes taking on Jack the Ripper. And then she's also in a film that I know you've, you've seen, but, uh, but I haven't. I remember you talking about this one, 1974's Madhouse, starring Vincent Price and Peter Cushing. Looking this up. I don't know. Have I seen this? Maybe you haven't seen it. Maybe. Maybe. But if I said I've seen it, I don't remember seeing it now. <laughs> okay. Well, maybe, maybe we just will see it in the future at some point. <laughs> uh, but uh, Corey was also in the fun Hammer space romp Moon Zero Two from 1969 in a film from 72 called Vampire Circus that I don't know much about, but with a title like Vampire Circus, you know, there, there's got to be something interesting in there. I would say that both Hazel Court and Adrian Corey do more with the roles they have in this movie than is actually there on the page. Right. Yeah. They both like clearly these are these are two actors who would go on to have much bigger roles and bigger pictures, and you can see why. Oh, you know, I would also actually say that about mainly because this is just a really underwritten movie, except for the mm-hmm. just <laughs> Uh, you know, a delicious weirdness of all the scenes where Naya is explaining her home planet and their and their plans and stuff. But uh, other than that, it's it's it, the characters are kind of underwritten. But the guy who plays the professor also does a little bit more with the role than you might have expected. Yeah, he's played by an actor by the name of uh, I think I'm saying his last name right. I could be wrong. Joseph uh, Tomalty. Yeah, that's what I thought. Tomalty. He lived uh, 1910 through 1995. Northern Irish novelist, playwright, and character actor. And he was uh, he was in at least, I, I don't know the extent of these roles, but he is credited as having appeared in 1958's A Night to Remember. Uh, I believe that's a Titanic movie. And 1956's mm-hmm. Moby Dick. So he plays Professor Hennessy. Yes, that's right. <laughs> Uh, and he had, I think, despite the fact that the, the movie is all really all Naya, the line that Rachel and I kept quoting back and forth at each other is one of his lines. The part where he says, I'm a scientist. I believe what my brain tells me to believe. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's, that's not, that's not how it works. <laughs> I love it. I also believe what my brain tells me to believe. I really have no choice. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Rob, as the uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies. What was your experience like? Yeah, that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day. And it's so fast acting. Uh, it was already kicking in before I left the house. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. 
Astapro delivers full prescription strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Astapro and go. Use this directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon. Just $25 a month, every month. Taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend, or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. All right. Uh, let's see. Another. Uh, I'm. I'm not including all of them because there are at least no, a half dozen other male characters. Way too many characters in this movie. 
Yeah. But there is another one by the name of David, who is a handyman, and he's played by James Edmond. James Edmond was a Canadian actor, probably best known for this film, but he was also in 1974's Black Christmas alongside... Uh, it, it, one kind of forgets that that had a pretty pretty good cast, Black Christmas. It had uh, Olivia Hussey, it had uh, Keir Dulay, Margot Kidder, and John Saxon. Uh, I saw it many years ago. I remember it did not leave a good impression, but no, uh, it's kind of a, kind of a nasty film as I recall, but there's no arguing with that cast. That's a good cast. Oh yeah. All right. On the music front, uh, Edwin Astley did the music British composer lived 1922 through 1998 worked in a lot of British action TV shows, uh, such as the saint. That's probably his, his, what he's most known for. He also did music for the hammer adaptation of the phantom of the opera from 62 starring Herbert Lom and a 1958 Jack the Ripper TV movie starring Boris Karloff. Now, one name that caught my attention uh, from the credits uh, for the wrong reason was it, it said that Patricia LaFon's costume was by Ronald Cobb. And I was like, Ron Cobb, like from <laughs> alien and Raiders of the lost Ark. No, it is a different Ron Cobb, but also a, a second excellent Ron Cobb. There, this world has at least two genius Ron Cobbs in it. Yeah, this was a lot of fun to dive into because initially when I did the scan of the people involved, I saw that credit too. And I saw this guy, Ronald Cobb, and I saw that he had no other film credit. So I thought, well, maybe it's just a one-off, but it's worth mentioning because the, the costume is great and, and clearly is one of the selling points of the whole picture. Uh, but looking into it a bit more, yeah, this is a, a, a Ronald Cobb who lived 1907 through 1977. And um, it, it, this guy worked primarily in theater and especially in cabaret during the, this time period. Um, I ran across some of his watercolors for various costumes that he designed over the years, several of which seem to be in the collection of the Victoria and Albert Museum. Um, I included a link here for you, Joe, I'll, and I'll also include these these links in the blog post I do for this at samutamusic.com. Uh, I didn't find anything that looked like a sketch that he had put together for Devil Girl specifically, but, oh, wow, there are some really wild, imaginative, dark, and uh, ahead of their time, I think, kind of um, designs that he put together for these costumes. Right. So these, it, he has a lot of costume designs for like, it appears to be burlesque clubs of some kind mm -hmm. in, in London, uh, in like the sixties and seventies, but they are not just your, your standard sexy outfits. They are weird. Like one is kind of grim reaper themed with like a big <laughs> gallows. And I, I don't even know it has bats. And <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's another one that has this like a flag with a pentagram on it, uh, like this really wild stuff that seems that you know you wouldn't expect to be emerging from this time period necessarily unless you're you know really into I guess to you know burlesque costume design of the period. Uh, there's also a headdress that has something that looks like a like a kind of like a Muppet goblin on top of it. It's uh, really really cool, kind of almost and it also looks almost like a camera. I don't know. It's weird. I can't really put it all together but you can find all of these images um uh, online in the the, uh, the collection of the the victoria and albert museum there are also some images apparently he he did some of his designs for murray's club in soho back in the day and so if you go to uh the website for murray's club they have some of these watercolors as well for for other designs that he did some of these are not as weird as the ones we're describing here but they're still pretty interesting mm-hmm now the the costume that that uh, that Naya has on in this picture it's not nearly as um uh as revealing as these various uh, 
uh, cabaret designs. Uh, but but still, you can see you can see some of the connections to this world. You know, like that's why it is perhaps a little more. Um, uh, alluring than than what you would normally see going on with costuming in pictures from this time period. No, the Devil Girl from Mars is dressed kind of like a cross between um, the the astronauts in Planet of the Vampires and Batman, but with a burlesque twist. Yeah. Now I was I read that writer John Mather, who we referenced earlier, later claimed in an interview that the suit was actually constructed by John Sutcliffe, a British fashion and fetish designer and photographer who worked a lot with leather and rubber and PVC, so lots of like cat suits and gas masks. Uh, however, I couldn't find anything uh, uh, anything firm about his connection to this film, and there do seem to be some misconceptions about film projects that he is sometimes uh, said to have been involved in. For instance, I think sometimes it's been said that he designed the cat suit that Emma Peel wears in The Avengers. Uh, hmm. I, that is, doesn't seem to be the case, but he did design the cat suit that Marianne Faithful wears in 1968's The Girl on a Motorcycle, and I think that inspired the cat suit worn by Emma Peel. Uh, so I don't know where the truth lies in all of that. Uh, it seems like maybe it's a situation where, yeah, Cobb designs it, and then they're like, well, somebody needs to build this thing. And someone's like, well, I know this guy named John. Uh, he's really into this stuff. He can make it come to life. Hmm. All right. Well, are you ready to talk about the plot? Let's dive into the first 20 minutes of uh, The Devil Girl from Mars. Really, I feel like the the first 20 minutes of this movie is going to be more fun to discuss than to watch. And then and then it's a flip side once Naya shows up. Well, it starts um, with a bang. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, you, you starts with Big Ben. I mean, how could you deny that? <laughs> we, we see that, you know, there's like a title card, a London Films international release. And then uh, we see an airplane coasting through the clouds, then a whistling sound growing higher in pitch. And then boom, plane explodes in a stupendous fireball. And we see the title. It's Devil Girl from Mars in block letters. Now, there were several things I thought were funny about the credits. There was seeing the name Ron Cobb, even though it was a different one. There was seeing that this was based on a play. But then the other funny thing that caught my attention is the producer credit screen. The producers get their own screen, and the screen makes it look like we're supposed to already know who the producers are. It says produced by the Danzigers. And then it's got two little signatures, like in handwriting, Edward J. Danziger and what does it say? Harry Lee Danziger. Mm-hmm. I have no idea who the, those people are, but like it, it presents it as if they're like the Osmonds or something. <laughs> yeah, I, I looked at the, into them briefly. Yeah, they apparently were very active producers at the time. American-born brothers who produced many British films and TV shows in the 50s and 60s. I'm not sure most of the titles they're, they're, they were involved with really resonated beyond their time. So I think it's... It's unless you're really into pictures of this time period, yeah, you probably don't know who the Danzigers are. Uh, mm-hmm. Devil Girl seems to be one of the best remembered productions from oh everything they put out, for example, along with per- perhaps the uh, the, film, the only film that maybe is a little more uh, famous uh, than this one would be the 1956 sci-fi movie Satellite in the Sky. This one had Kieran Moore in it, who many out there may remember as the actor who played Pony in Darby O'Gill and the Little People. He was also in Crack in the World and Invasion of the Triffids. I haven't seen any of that. So I oh, you haven't seen Darby O'Gill? No. Oh, it's a fun one. When, when uh, St. Patty's Day rolls back around, you should, uh, you should watch that one. Oh, okay. 
All right. Well, after the credits wrap up, we establish the setting of the movie, which is The Bonnie Charlie. It is a rustic country inn nestled upon the Scottish moor, supposed to be somewhere in Inverness Shire, which is up in the Highlands, and it's said to be wintertime. So it's cold, and this is a, you know, a lonely, cozy little country house uh, and inn. And the first thing we hear is a radio going. So we, we go inside and the radio is saying, this is the BBC Home Service. Here is the news. It was announced by the Home Office today that, a, uh, that the mysterious noise heard over a lonely part of Inverness Shire yesterday was caused by a supposed meteor falling to Earth. And here we meet a couple of characters. We meet Tommy, the annoying kid. And we meet Doris, the barmaid. And, of course, she is going to be very busy in this movie uh, because a major theme of Devil Girl from Mars is needing a drink. And granted, the characters in this film are put in exceptional circumstances, but it's still their intake of scotch suggests uh, a a daily regular intake of scotch that seems uh, a bit beyond what I would be comfortable with. Well, yeah, and the the excessive intake of scotch begins long before any aliens appear on the scene. Right, right. Yeah, they're already hard drinking before anything supernatural or out of this world occurs. So, you know, the radio's blabbering on with exposition about an unidentified white aircraft seen floating in the sky over the Hebrides. And Tony the Kid is like, uh, Oi, what's a meteor? And Doris says, I don't know, but, you know, uh, let's say good job to the meteor for not landing on us. And then here comes Mrs. Jameson, who is Tommy's aunt, and she is the proprietor of the inn. And she kept reminding me of Maggie Smith, but her main characteristics are being suspicious of strangers, which is a very good quality for an innkeeper, (laughs) and uh, scolding her husband for having his 17th dram of scotch. (laughs) I can't remember if I've already flagged this or not. Maybe I have, but I just want to emphasize again, the owners of the inn are named Jameson and the husband is apparently named Jamie Jameson. Wow. That'd be like if you had a character named uh, Jack, Jack Danielson in a picture. Jack, Jack Danielson. Or I think the professor's character name is, uh, is Henny Hennessy. (laughs) So anyway, Tommy, the kid, he's sent to bed and Doris and Mrs. Jameson discuss the meteor. Doris thinks it mighty romantic that it came all the way from outer space to land in their sleepy neck of the woods. And Mrs. Uh, Mrs. Jameson is not impressed. She's, she's just like, Oh, a bit of rock from the sky. Uh, but after Mrs. Jameson leaves, Doris, the barmaid surreptitiously turns the radio back on. It's like she has a secret science news habit. Um, and the radio says professor. Oh, okay. It's not Henny Hennessy. It's professor Arnold Hennessy. The radio says, uh, the well-known astrophysicist has traveled North today to investigate the mysterious object. And we'll give a detailed report to the home office. So we got the Jamesons and we got the Hennessys and we know that their, their paths are going to collide. And you cut from here to two guys in a car in the dark. One is Professor Hennessy himself and the other is a fast-talking, wise-cracking journalist named Michael Carter, played by Hugh McDermott. Michael Carter is such an insufferable lout. Uh, I guess they've been driving around all day to find the meteorite, but now they are lost in Scotland, in the land of perpetual darkness, and they are unable to figure out the map that they're consulting. And then there's some really clunky expository dialogue where Carter says something like, you mean to tell me you spend your whole career plotting stars millions of miles apart, and yet you can't read a roadmap of Scotland? I really think they should have inserted a a prize in there. Like he should have said, you mean to tell me you won the Nobel prize for plotting stars millions of miles apart. 
<laughs> but Professor Hennessy reveals that he believes the whole investigation is a waste of time anyway. Uh, he says he doesn't believe it will turn out to be a meteor. He thinks it will be more probably turn out to be the engine cowling of an airplane. Well, let's hope he's wrong, because that sounds like that would that would be terrible for this film. That would be boring, yes. Yeah. We, we also get more exposition via the radio. The radio announcer says, Robert Justin, who earlier today escaped from Sterling Prison, is still at large. His description is as follows. Height, 5 feet 10 inches, fair hair. And then what do you know? Next thing we see is a guy, presumably the escaped prisoner, darting around between hiding places in the dark beside the road as uh, the professor and the journalist pass in their car. <laughs> And he's so so unremarkable looking. <laughs> yeah, well, when we first see him, he's got kind of a wild look in his eye, but he's also, he's kind of blandly handsome, so you can yeah. probably tell he's going to turn out to be the hero. Yeah, he doesn't look, he doesn't look menacing, so that's the, that's the, the key. That's what, that's the, that, that's the tell here. Uh, do, do you think it's possible all these characters will make their way over to the Bonnie Charlie, the end? <laughs> Uh, anyway, next thing is we see Doris, the barmaid, and then Mr. and Mrs. Jameson doing some chores around the house while Mr. Jameson is trying to sneak off into the other room. And, and she's like, uh, Miss Jameson is like, where are you going? And he says, oh, I'm just going into the lounge. And she says, uh, into the lounge bar, you mean? Well, you'll stay here. If you're thirsty, there's plenty of water in the tap. So th this is the ongoing dynamic between Mr. and Mrs. Jameson. He is always getting caught in an attempt to sneak away for a draft of scotch and mrs jameson forbids it though i will say starting about halfway through the movie he just starts getting away with consuming scotch and she just sort of like laughs about it like oh there he goes again <laughs> he sees the opportunity it's like alien visitation this is my chance to just drink scotch nonstop without being fussed at uh, but Doris, the barmaid, instead goes off to the lounge where she hears a strange rapping at the door and she opens it up. And what do you know? It's that escaped prisoner we saw earlier. And he comes in and she says, Robert. And he says, no, it's not Robert anymore. It's Albert. Albert Simpson. Okay, so he was Robert Justin, but now he's going by Albert Simpson. And confusingly, this is how everyone will refer to him for the rest of the movie, even though they first introduced him by a different name. Hmm. Okay, so what happened? Well, we find out, quote, Albert Simpson escaped from prison, and Doris and Albert already have a relationship. In fact, they were in love. And while he was in prison, she promised to wait for him to get out, and she took the job in Invernessshire to be close, I guess, to Sterling Prison, where he was being held. But he escaped, and here he is. Why was he in prison? We find out it is for murdering his wife, but oh. he maintains that it was not murder, it was an accident. This is never really resolved. He just says <laughs> it was an accident, and that's as much as we ever find out about it. That red flag just remains hanging there the whole time, flying yes. in the breeze. I think we're meant to understand that he's telling the truth and he didn't really murder her. I, I don't know. Yeah, I feel like the film should have put in a little more legwork on that one. Yeah, at least explain. Like, it doesn't go into how it was an accident or, like, mm -hmm. why it was he, he was falsely accused. Yeah. Maybe that would sell it a little better. I don't know. But anyway, okay, so he's convicted of murdering his wife. He escapes from prison. He finds his old girlfriend at the end, and he's like, hide me. But in the middle of them talking about how she needs to hide him, oops, here comes Mrs. Jameson. You know, uh, Maggie Smith comes in, basically. And uh, <laughs> and they've got to come up with a ruse really fast. Uh, so Doris is like, oh, 
Um, this is a hiker. His name's Albert Simpson. He was out hiking, uh, you know, in Scotland and he dropped his wallet in a stream while he was trying to look at a fish, (laughs) they say, and now he is lost and he needs to stay at the inn, and he will work for his keep. And Mrs. Jameson accepts this, but she's very suspicious of him. She says, I'm counting the spoons. (laughs) Oh, and you know, what, what does Doris do? First thing she's like, would you like a drop of something? So she pours him a scotch, uh, and she's got all these questions about his time in prison. She just keeps asking like, did you read a lot? You used to love to read. What was it like inside? And he, you can just see the pressure building up. He's like, stop, stop asking. Yeah. (laughs) So, uh, and then Albert Simpson's like, okay, well, I got to know who all's here while I'm hiding out. And Doris tells him, this is confusing. She's like, the only people here are Mr. And Mrs. Jameson and their nephew, Tommy. But then the rest of the scene is other people like coming in who she didn't list. So the first guy is this guy, David, who appears to live and work at the inn. He's kind of, he's the Torgo of the inn. You know, mm-hmm. he's uh, carrying wood around and stuff. And, and, and Doris uh, confides that David gives her the creeps. But then she also says, oh yeah, and there is somebody else here. It's Miss Prestwick. She is a gorgeous model from London. What she's doing in a place like this, I don't know. This, of course, is Hazel Court playing Ellen Prestwick. Uh, and then we see her come down to the lounge where where Jamie Jameson tries to flirt with her. Uh, he's being very inappropriate. He's like, oh, you're always pretty as a picture. And uh, she she's like doing a little fashion show for him in the hall. I don't know. It's weird. She's like, uh, she's like talking about the outfit she's wearing as if it's in a fashion catalog. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of fun. Like she's, she's like I say, she's breathing a lot of life into this character. Yeah. Um, fully inflating the character here. And then more hotel hijinks ensue. Uh, Jamie keeps sneaking booze and uh, he, he says, my wife has the most unpatriotic contempt for her national beverage. And Miss Jameson, Mrs. Jameson says, you should see him when he has a patriotic head in the morning. Uh. Uh-huh. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed a 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon. Just $25 a month, every month. Taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. 
And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, meanwhile, the professor and the journalist, they were the ones lost in the car. Well, they're done being lost on the road. They see a sign for a pub and they're like, let's go get a drink. So they, they pull up outside and they run in talking about how they're going to get quote, a couple of big scotches. Uh, <laughs> and then they come in and there's more like, can we accommodate them type hand wringing? Like we got with uh, Albert Simpson earlier. And eventually Mrs. Jameson informs them was like, well, we're supposed to be closed for the winter right now. Uh, we, the rooms aren't ready. They're not in ship shape, but you can sleep there. And she says the beds are good. And Rachel and I both reacted to that. Like something about the Bonnie Charlie does not seem like it would have good beds. My impression is this place would have beds that are basically a piece of flagstone wrapped in wool that feels like barbed wire. <laughs> and I don't know if you, you also got the same, just uncomfortable vibes from, from the setting. Like I think inside this building, it's one of those places that feels like it would be 
somehow cold and stuffy at the same time. Like it's too cold and too hot simultaneously. Yeah. And one of those situations where, you know, that wooden bar that it probably has that situation going on where you have like the dust and the grime have kind of, they're kind of one thing. Now this kind of like sticky, uh, like black film over everything. Like, you know, you know, that has to be the case here. Well, Mrs. Jameson offers them something to eat, but uh, but Michael Carter says, what I need most is a drink. Uh, so they go and they get drinks, uh, and Jamie is trying to serve them, and there's more bickering about whether he will serve them drinks or not. Uh, as they settle in, Michael Carter, the journalist, begins obnoxiously hitting on Miss Prestwick. Um, he, he's commenting on the fact that she's drinking tomato juice and he's like, not many girls drink tomato juice unless they're afraid of putting on weight. Uh, so he's like trying to do some kind of negging pickup artist routine. And Mm -hmm. I was just thinking, when will the Martians kill this man? Unfortunately, never. He turns out Mm -hmm. to be one of the heroes of the movie. Yeah. Uh, but then Professor Hennessy introduces himself, uh, and they, they decide to have another wee scotch. And, uh, I think this is the scene where in the span of 30 seconds, they like go get a drink three separate times. <laughs> yeah. Gosh, there's just so much scotch drinking and occasionally other liquids are suggested as possible beverages, possible liquids that could be consumed. But generally everyone seems to be of the opinion that no scotch is the best. Yeah. Uh, they, they do sit down to have some dinner to have some supper which for which they're having scotch broth and no if you're not familiar that is actually a type of soup it is not just a term for hot (laughs) scotch in a bowl Uh, Uh, and one of the things they talk about at dinner is jamie jameson giving a passionate defense of the loch ness monster he's like i will Mm -hmm. not have anyone speak ill of that fine creature yes uh, but can we explain the scene of Michael Carter blowing Albert Simpson's cover? So the, the escaped convict comes in. He's, you know, working for his stay. So he's like serving bread at the table. And then the journalist uh, recognizes him. He's like, do you know who that is? That's not Albert Simpson. That's this other guy. And Unless I was mistaken, I think we're supposed to believe that he recognizes him based on the description that was given on the radio earlier. I guess, though, that is a very vague description. Yeah. So I guess Michael Carter is a journalist, though, right? Yeah. So maybe he's seen a picture through journalism. I don't know. Oh, oh, he just happened to cover this guy's trial or something? Uh Maybe. I mean, it's it's not explained. Anyway, the tension of this confrontation, when it's at its peak, it's suddenly interrupted by a cataclysmic uh, event. There's like a, a shaking of the house. And uh, the it is the approach and landing of a flying saucer, which when they go outside, they can't even get close to it because it's too hot. And this flying saucer, I'm going to say the effect looks a little too good for the movie that it's in. Yeah, it is a way better UFO, way better flying saucer than you might expect from this film. A film that is is often one of the things that's often written about it is that it you know had a low budget. It's not a high budget affair, and yeah. uh, and and also you see enough films from this era. You see enough films with flying saucers in it. You get used to a certain level of of cheapness. You know, you can have like some sort of a dinky model and some large tripods for characters to stand around. That's essentially all you need. And, and it can be fun. It can, but there's sort of a standard level of of quality that you kind of accept things to hover around. And I feel like Mm -hmm. this flying saucer goes beyond that. It's, it's got this, um, 
you know, it's got plenty of the elements of a standard 50s, standard 50s flying saucer that you might come to ex- to expect, but it also has this kind of different energy to it. You know, it's described as being hot, it's portrayed as being hot. It has this kind of industrial atomic sensibility to it, and it has these like telescopic legs that come out. Yeah, it has moving parts and it seems to emit its own light. Yeah. So it's uh, this is a really cool flying saucer model, I have to say. All right, so they all react to that in various ways. Uh, Mr. Carter, the the journalist, runs to the telephone and I think quite hilariously just keeps like screaming into it, hello, 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 hello. <laughs> and uh, meanwhile, Doris gets her convict boyfriend to hide in the attic. Others scramble around trying to get a car working or to find a functional telephone, all to no avail. We get our first action scene and our first scene seeing Patricia Lafon as Naya when uh, the the ship opens up and a, a ramp extends down out of the hull and we see Naya come out. She hasn't said anything yet. She's just silent and wearing all this shiny black leather with the skull cap. She looks very dangerous and she comes down the ramp and uh oh, there's a uh, you know there's David the 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 ends uh, the 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 Bonnie Charlie's Torgo wandering around outside and he collapses outside the ship and uh she just vaporizes him yeah he is he is not a specimen uh, that uh that she thinks is gonna help mars out at all so instantly vaporized leaves nothing but smoke and a pair of spectacles that's right it's just like a a, a, a steaming patch of sod and and the major tote glasses <laughs> but it's hard facts of life she's looking for hunks and uh and torgo here does not make the cut this is in stark contrast to uh, Ship of Monsters, remember, because in that one, our females from Venus arrive, they encounter our male hero, and they're like, oh, it's a male. And they ask him, it's like, are you the, the prime specimen? Are you like the peak specimen for your species? And he's like, yeah, I am. <laughs> and they believe him. Yeah. <laughs> and they believe him. Uh, in this, she's like, no, no, this isn't it. Vaporize. No. no. What is, is this? 1954. I guess she'd be like, where is Rock Hudson? Take me to your Rock yeah. Hudsons. Though, interestingly, this film has no Rock Hudson caliber actors in it. So. No, no. <laughs> so, uh, so that unfortunate thing happens to, to David. And meanwhile, the, the professor and Michael Carter have been trying to fix up the phone in the car, but to no avail. It's as if all of their Earth technology has been magically disabled. Uh, and so they come back inside and, and they're like, hey, Doris, fix us up a couple of big scotches, will you? <laughs> that is a direct quote. Uh, but Doris can't fix them big scotches because she has been hypnotized. And this is something that will happen to multiple characters throughout the movie. Later, uh, the the uh, escaped convict gets hypnotized. The Martians appear to have some kind of like mind control ray. And when when somebody suggests, do you think her catatonic state could have anything to do with the flying saucer outside? The professor, for some reason, is just categorically opposed to the idea that the flying saucer could have anything to do with it. He goes, I tell you, that's absurd. But this is the scene where we meet Patricia Lafon. She suddenly throws the doors to the room open and comes inside. And here she is, folks. The alien commander is standing between the French doors, uh, you know, cold and imperious. And this scene just rocks. There is something Mm -hmm. so unusual in a simultaneously funny and kind of spellbinding way about the rhythm of the dialogue in the scene, the way it mostly consists of fairly short questions and answers. Like the earthlings will ask a question of, of the Martian and then 
she will answer in a short form and the way she delivers her lines. I don't know if you know what I'm talking about, Rob, but it just establishes this, this amazing rhythm that's so consistently weird and funny. Oh yeah. Yeah. The rapport here is pretty great. And, and I I also have to say the scene where suddenly she's there, uh, Naya is there emerging through these, uh, the, 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 the French doors. There was something about this that, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a visually uh, captivating uh, scene and but but it was it was tingling something in my memory, and I, then I realized what it was. It's uh, Jim Henson's 1986 film Labyrinth. Uh, pretty oh. early on, when we encounter Jareth, the Goblin King, he is standing. Uh, it's not exactly the same, but but it's 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 very similar. Like these terrestrial door, uh, French doors or something, or windows that have been opened, and inside. Um, uh, this opening, you have this this just exquisite character from another world in this amazing costume that's you know bold and confident and sexy. I see exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. Mm. So she comes in, and uh, and the the guys in the room ask her who she is. She says her name is Naya. They ask her where she's from. She says Mars. Professor Hennessy objects that it is preposterous that she could be from Mars. No way. And then she says, you men on Earth are not as we expected. <laughs> She's very <laughs> disappointed. Uh, and uh, Professor Hennessy says, we scientists were always skeptical about the possibility of life on Mars, but certainly nothing so human. And she, she asks him, you are a scientist? He says, yes. Then she says, you are a very poor physical specimen. <laughs> so cold, so mean. Uh, but then uh, she just sort of shoves the professor out of the way, presumably because, I don't know, she's trying to get a look at Michael Carter. I guess he's a better physical specimen. But Michael Carter's like, you speak English? And she says, of course. You are English, aren't you? What other language should I speak? And then she does this weird hand gesture. Uh, I don't know what this is all about. I think maybe she's like turning off the hypnosis mode on Doris. Mm. And then she says that she, in fact, speaks all languages by picking up Earth radio. They ask her, is this the first time Martians have landed on Earth? And she says, yes. They ask, why did she land here? And she says, it's a miscalculation. You see, she was trying to get to London, presumably to locate the stud district of London, but Earth's atmosphere was thicker than expected, and part of the ship was torn off, and they were forced to land in Scotland. And the, the part of the ship being torn off explains the meteor from earlier. Mm. She says, repairs are going to take about four Earth hours, and in the meantime, I guess she's probably just going to toy with them very cruelly. Now, they ask her, is she alone in the ship? And her answer is, according to the version I was watching and the subtitles that came with it, the answer is, Johnny is with me. <laughs> I have read elsewhere that the character she's referring to is actually named Chani, spelled C H A N I, mm -hmm. but it sounds like there it every time she says it it sounds like Johnny and the subtitle spelled it Johnny, so I don't know what to believe. Yeah, I I read it somewhere as Chani, but when she's saying it in the picture it's really hard to hear anything other than Johnny. Uh, but Chani would be a more fitting name, I think, for uh, an off-world robot. 
Right, because Johnny is a killbot. She explains, Johnny is a mechanical man, a robot with many of the characteristics of a human. This is hilarious when you see him later because he he's not very much like a human. Yeah, uh, but like she 20 says, feet tall. Yeah, he's a refrigerator with arms and legs. Um, but they say, uh, but, but she says, oh, but he is improved by an electronic brain. And then here we get a bunch of voluntary techno babble from Naya. She just offers up explanations, uh, about how all of her stuff works. She says the metal from which her spaceship is constructed can reproduce itself. Uh, mm-hmm. and, uh, and then weirdly, I don't know why this is, but we see Miss Prestwick outside the door, like listening in, like she's spying on them. Um, but eventually she gets FOMO and just sort of comes into the room. Uh, but the, the, the professor and everybody are arguing about this. Do you realize what you've said? They've turned the inorganic into the organic. Okay. Well, we're about to get to the main premise. So they start questioning her why she's going to London. This is what Naya says. She says, many of your earth years ago, our women were similar to yours today. Our emancipation took several hundred years and ended in a bitter, devastating war between the sexes. The last war we ever had. Uh, uh, Henny here says, uh, so you've had wars too. I was like, why would you ask that? Obviously, she just said they've had <laughs> she wars. Just said that. <laughs> she just said that. <laughs> but Naya says, all inhabited planets have had wars. Some have ended by wiping themselves out. For every new weapon invented, a defense was perfected. Until the ultimate weapon was developed, a perpetual motion <laughs> chain reactor beam. <laughs> oh, God. That's, this has got to be peak um, techno babble. Like, what, yes. what is that even? And then how, even I'm failing to, to imagine what that could be, much less how it is then utilized in an on-planet battle between uh, two factions based on sex. Oh, I mean, she explains a little bit that he's the professor's like, tell me more. I want to know about the perpetual motion chain reactor beam. And she says, as fast as matter was created, it was changed by its molecular structure into the next dimension and so destroyed itself. Okay, well, I I don't know if that actually helps me any, but but she's got more to say. The the professor, his his comment on this is so there is a fourth dimension. Uh, but Naya explains more. She says, uh, you know, after the war of the sexes, women became the rulers of Mars. But now the male has fallen into a decline. The birth rate is dropping tremendously. For despite our advanced science, we still have found no way of creating life. I, I guess she means other than like standard sexual reproduction, which we assume is their method, though they're never explicit about that. So I, I don't know. Uh, but then uh, Miss Prestwick, she kind of challenges Naya on this. Uh, she goes, so you've come here for new blood. <laughs> and I love the way uh, Hazel Court here has this like defiant tone. Like Miss Prestwick is feeling territorial and mm-hmm. she's like, you're not going to steal my beloved earth schlubs. Uh, you know, they, they belong here with us. But Naya just, uh, you know, she she's not having any any defiance. She's like, yes, we're here to, to steal your males. We're going to kidnap your males and breed with them. But also, uh, we are here to test a newly invented organic metal, uh, quote, of which my ship is built. On Mars, some think I will not return, that the metal is too unstable. But when I get back, we will build more spaceships. Meanwhile, I will select some of your strongest men to return with me to Mars. 
Okay, so it's it's, it's a it's a dual mission. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's you know it's testing out the prototype metal and it's collecting Earthmen. And Michael Carter of the Earthmen says, "And if I don't want to go with you, I, just assuming he's going to be picked." Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and Naya says, "There is no if." <laughs> uh, she says she will take her pick of quote the man and subdue London with the help of a nuclear paralyzer ray. Hmm. And so, like the humans start arguing about this with each other. Miss Prestwick says to the professor, "Don't you understand that this thing from Mars can destroy all life?" And then, very funny, uh, so most of the Earth males don't want to go to Mars, but I thought it was funny here how the professor is like, well, hold on now. We must think objectively about what is happening. <laughs> uh, he's, he says, this is the turning point in the history of the world. Maybe, you know, I think he's saying we need to hear her out. But it's also extra funny given uh, how cold she was to him earlier. He's like, yeah. he's like but, but maybe it's me. Maybe I'm the one yeah. that should go. No, you are a very poor male specimen <laughs> uh but then oh but then one of the funniest parts of the whole movie mrs jameson comes into the room and she sees this lady here just dressed in this like crazy leather space suit mm-hmm. and uh michael carter says mrs jameson may i introduce your newest guest miss naya she comes from mars and then what does mrs jameson reply she says, "Oh well, that'll mean another bed." Yeah, <laughs> and it's uh, it is one of the. It's always kind of neat when in a film like this you have one or two lines that are legitimately intentionally funny. That was, that was some good writing there. Yeah, but then she does a double take. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed a 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices... Well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon. Just $25 a month, every month. Taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. 
Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. By the way, Joe, you included here for me a screenshot of the of the character standing in front of the bar. Do you think those are all scotch bottles back there on the wall? They have like four shelves of liquor bottles. And I'm just I'm suddenly wondering, what are we looking at here? It's a lot of bottles and I don't I I don't know. I'm not seeing a lot of gin back there. It all looks mm. like a brown liquor of various sorts. Scotch enthusiasts will have to let us know. I really only know my way around a couple of scotches. Yeah. Uh, though it's funny, I just remembered something when Rachel and I were watching this, uh, you know, with all the characters that are named Hennessy and Jameson, when, um, when Naya first came in, Rachel said, my name is Campari. (laughs) (laughs) That's good. That's a good riff. Oh, suddenly at this point in the movie, everybody gets agitated that they can't find David, the guy that Mm. she vaporized out on the lawn. Um, and they're like, he's missing. And then they all turn to her and they're like, Miss Naya, have you? And she says, of course he was no (laughs) stud muffin. So I killed him. (laughs) Uh, and Michael, Michael Carter gets really mad about this. They have to like restrain him. He's like trying to punch her or something and they're all Mm -hmm. holding him back. 
I don't know why they felt the need to establish that they found him creepy earlier. Like that, there was no payoff for that. <laughs> like, yeah. he, he never did anything that was creepy. There was no. Like sometimes you introduce the the stereotypical creepy groundskeeper character because you want to have him be a suspect in you know or, or something or you know or he's creeping around and happens to uh, you know run afoul of the the Jason or whatever's running around uh, on the on the grounds. But in this case, I don't know. He was just out getting wood. Like, why did it matter yeah, that he was creepy? He didn't actually do anything wrong. Yeah. You kind of got to feel bad for David. Like, yeah, he, <laughs> for, for all we know, he was a totally nice guy. He had no lines. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, here, Naya leaves and she says, okay, uh, around this house, I've drawn an invisible wall. You can't get through it. So don't even try to leave. Uh, I'm going to do repairs on my ship and I'll be back to, to kill you all and maybe take some of the strongest males. <laughs> And then the rest of the movie is just people coming and going back and forth from the ship like 15 times. Uh, Naya, yeah. in in a quite funny manner, in fact, keeps leaving and then coming back to the inn. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and then there are, there are some more scenes between the humans that are, I think, trying to do character development. Like there is a scene where Michael Carter, the, the really annoying journalist, and Miss Prestwick fall in love. Uh, like he yeah. ostensibly, he comes up to her room at the hotel knocking on the door with the excuse that he has come to see if she has any scotch. Like, <laughs> like they're out downstairs. Like, yeah, no, they're clearly not. It's like, Hey, I was wondering if there's any air in your room that I could breathe. I couldn't find any anywhere else. Uh, but if she invites him in and she, he's like, you got any scotch? And she says, no, but I've got some brandy. Okay. Um, and, uh, and so, and we, we get their backstories. Miss Prestwick uh, talks about how she's in Scotland. Actually, she doesn't volunteer this information. He does like a cold reading routine where he like tells her her whole backstory just by, I don't know, by like, like observing her. And I guess it's all correct. He, you know, he figures out that she's in Scotland because she's, she's hiding from a married man with whom she is having an affair he, I think he is the fashion designer and she is his muse. And then meanwhile, Michael Carter explains, I don't know. His backstory is like, he's like, Oh, I've seen all the terrible things in the war zones, but now I'm done with all that. And then he says, now I'm letting my hair down, which was a laugh out loud <laughs> moment because he does not have much hair to let down. Right. <laughs> oh, but then there's also the invisible wall. This was a lot of fun because you have uh, uh, Naya established that she was going to set a perimeter, an invisible wall to keep people from leaving. And again, these characters have been drinking scotch nonstop. And then, yeah. and then you have the professor bumble in. Right. So they, they look out the window. Actually, before this, sorry, before this, they um, uh, Michael and Miss Prestwick have a dialogue exchange that is so funny. Oh. It, it means nothing. But at one point, he's just... I guess he's just frustrated. He just goes, it's that thing out there. And then she says, it is there, Michael. <laughs> what? Yeah, what does that mean? Thanks. Thanks, movie. Yes. It, it, oh, yeah. I remember now. There is a spaceship outside. And but there's just also, trying to an, keep... it, also an invisible wall, though. And That's right. <laughs> Maybe that's the thing they were talking about. I don't know. Is it the spaceship <laughs> or is it the, the, the robot or the spaceship? But so the professor comes back, uh, he's got blood on his head now, and they're like, Professor, mm-hmm. what, what happened? And he's like, well, I went out walking, and then I crashed into the invisible wall. There really <laughs> is an invisible wall. I thought it impossible by all that is known to science. 
Yeah, I don't know. I just found that ex- also hilarious. I think this might be the scene with I believe what my brain tells me to believe. Mm. And my brain ran into an invisible wall. <laughs> uh, now, here we get the first of a couple of times where the people at the end try to figure out how to outsmart Naya. Uh, mm-hmm. Like there, There's another scene later where they set a lit- literally set an electrical trap for her, like in The Thing from Another World, which mm-hmm. doesn't work. But in this scene, they try to, they find a gun and they're like, well, we can just shoot her when she comes in. And, uh, Naya makes a fabulous entrance. She like throws the doors open and steps in. And mm-hmm. I wish I could sh- like show you the, the listener out there, a gif of this, uh, because it's, it's such a wonderful step in move. Yeah. It's uh, very she- Jareth from Labyrinth. Again, there's, there's no owl, but it has that same energy. Yes. Uh, and they try shooting her with a revolver, but the bullets have no effect. The The posture that Michael Carter does while he's shooting at her is so funny. He's got his non-shooting hand tucked behind his back, and he's just mm-hmm. standing up straight with the gun sort of at stomach level, just going bang, bang. And, of course, the bullets bounce off of Naya because, she, you know, she's she's perfect. She's she's literally nothing could defeat her. Absolutely she, bulletproof. Right. She says, you poor, demented humans. To imagine you can destroy me with your old-fashioned toy. What do you know of force? Force as we use it on Mars. I could control power beyond your wildest dreams. Come and you shall see. So she's going to give a de- demonstration. I love it when aliens give a demonstration of their power for a, mm-hmm. for a crowd of Earth onlookers. And uh, so they so she takes them out to the spaceship to show her robot Johnny to show them what Johnny can do. Uh, so Johnny, he comes out. Johnny is gigantic. He is a refrigerator with arms and legs. His arms are kind of like made out of a stack of solo cups. His head is a police siren and he, he walks around. He's, he's slow moving and he hates trees and he's going to incinerate them. And he vaporizes a bunch of stuff with his death ray while people watch. He does the tree. He does a car. He does a barn. Uh, yeah, he, you don't want to mess with Johnny. I I, th- I think it's a pretty good robot design. I mean, it's one of the, it's kind of like the, the UFO, kind of like the flying saucer in this film where yes, it does match up with what you would expect from this time period, boxy, you know, uh, sort of, uh, lumbering around, uh, but overall well executed. I like how it's, it's arms, the, you just described them as being kind of like stacked silo cups, but they kind of have that telescoping energy, uh, mm. that matches up with the flying saucer. Well, like you feel like these are two things from the same design universe. Sure. Yeah, I can see that. And again, he's really tall. He's like 15 feet tall. Maybe. I don't know. He's, yes. he's towering. He, she's like, he is like one of your earth humans, but with a, an improved brain. Um, and then Naya, let's see. Oh, oh, uh, Albert Simpson. Remember him, the convict he's been hiding mm-hmm. in the attic. Well, he, he sneaks out of the window along with Tommy, the kid, they both climb down a tree and they're running around outside. Eventually Naya comes across them and she's like, ah, oh, this, this earth, Tommy, I will take this boy back to Mars with me. And Tommy literally goes, goody. <laughs> he wants to go to Mars. Uh, but as you might guess, this turns into, uh, for the rest of the plot, a lot of it's like various adult men trying to find a way to rescue Tommy and destroy the spaceship. 
Uh, mm-hmm. Again, there's the part where they try to set an electricity trap for Naya. Uh, that does not work. At one point, Professor Hennessy tricks Naya into showing him the inside of her spaceship. And the way he does it by is uh, by like appealing to her pride. He's like, we earthlings also have powerful machines. And this makes her really mad. She's like, mm-hmm. none equal to those of Mars. So she <laughs> takes him to see the inside of the spaceship. And, uh, and he's going to get a look at things to figure out what the weak point inside the, the ship is. And you know what? He finds out. Yeah, he's he. I mean, he, he's. You can imagine him being like, uh, like, oh, you should you should see the self destruct mechanisms we have on Earth ships. And she's <laughs> like, those are nothing. Look at this self destruct button. <laughs> yeah, this mechanism is far superior. Uh, but the design of the inside of the spaceship is cool. Yeah, I really liked it as well. It has some some cool angles in it. They do some nice things with shadow and light. And this leads me to another interesting uh, visual connection. This is not one that I made. This is one that uh, I ran across when I was looking at images from the film. Um, Jane Voss of SciFiest.net. That's S-C-I-F-I-S-T. I guess it looks like SciFist. Uh, not dot net. Uh, anyway, this author made this particular comparison, pointing out that um, that the uh, the inside of the spaceship uh, can matches up at least a, a bit with the meditation chamber of Darth Vader in The Empire Strikes Back. They do a side by side comparison here, and um, I you know I'm I'm not sure I 100 percent am convinced. I think it's a nifty comparison. The the author points out that Lucas certainly was inspired by older genre films and the and in making the Star Wars films they did look to uh older cinematic images. Uh so it's I don't know, it's a neat connection if nothing else. The author also points to the uh, to possible connections between um Naya and uh, Dr. Frankenfurter from the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Again, I'm I'm not so sure personally, but but maybe there's certainly some shared DNA between Naya and the likes of Jareth from Labyrinth or Frankenfurter from Rocky Horror. And I guess you could also make some comparisons in a different way between uh, Naya and Darth Vader. I mean, they're both uh, you know stunning characters clad in in black shiny uh, you know garments and armor. Yeah, well, they both have the the black, uh, the, like the shoulder pads and the mm-hmm. and the smooth headpiece and the 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 foot the floor length cape. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know. Maybe so. At any rate, cool ship interior. I like it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so there's a bunch more intrigue. I'm not going to go into detail about everything else that happens, especially between the humans. There's one part where like the one of the humans gets hypnotized, and then they gets into a fist fight with one of the other guys, and they they argue about how to defeat the alien in the end. But ultimately, the movie ends with Albert Simpson, the the convict, uh, doing a, a brave act of heroic self-sacrifice to uh, use the information gained by the professor about the weak point on the ship and to save the day for Earth. It's, it's a fun ending because on one level, uh, I don't know, I guess we were supposed to think this as well, uh, because we, we see him get on the ship. He, he, he boards the ship with Naya, and the ship takes off. And again, wonderful flying saucer effect. It feels dangerous and, and you, know, almost ex, you know almost explosive, and it takes off, and it's ascending up in the atmosphere. It's going to leave Earth's atmosphere, return to Mars. And we know what he is supposed to do. He is supposed to hit that self-destruct. He's supposed to make the, the, the ship explode. And we already have a built-in kind of, they don't really dwell on this, but she established earlier that the other Martians think that the ship won't survive the trip. So there's almost like a, yeah. a guarantee if they can only blow the ship up, they're not expecting her back. 
But on the other hand, it's like this guy escaped from prison and his biggest his plan consisted of, well, maybe we can, I can flee to Ireland, but now like oh, this yeah. is, he's got a chance to flee the planet. He can flee the terrestrial legal system entirely and go to Mars. And yeah, maybe he's going to end up in a breeding pod somewhere with a, with a, you know, some sort of a sensor stuck in his brain, but Hey, at least he's not in prison or in, uh, in Ireland doing whatever he was planning to do in Ireland. Uh, so you, you, there's kind of this tension building as you watch the, the ship go up. It's like, is he going to betray uh, everyone out of his own self-interest or is he going to sacrifice himself for earth? And then suddenly the ship does explode. But uh, this is great because uh, again, Watching a movie from this time period, you have certain ex- expectations for that explosion. You kind mm. of expect, uh, you know, a sort of a dynamite explosion in the sky. But no, instead, you get this really cool kind of like underwater smoke explosion, uh, which is uh, extra nice here in black and white. Um, and it looks really super creepy, like a, indeed, like a dangerous piece of advanced technology from another world just blew up in our atmosphere, ripped a hole, perhaps in reality. Uh, you know, it looks like it's created a stain in the sky that's going to stick around for quite some time. Uh, but uh, indeed, uh, he came through, he saved the earth, and uh, the alien threat has been destroyed or 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 maybe just uh, avoided for a little while the martians maybe won't come back to earth for uh you know a few decades anyway i agree that explosion looks really cool and it and it actually i think the way the explosion looks kind of unusual maybe relates to something a scene we didn't actually talk about the one where naya like folds herself into the fourth dimension and disappears she becomes blurry and they're yeah. like, ah, oh, the fourth dimension. This was another scene where she's like basically just showing off how great Martian technology is. Well, you know, I'd say in the end, Devil Girl from Mars is is great fun. I do recommend it. I, I would also say stick around at least until Naya shows up. It, it will drag for the first 20, 25 minutes or so. But but once Naya is on screen, it's it's a hoot. Yeah, this one's a lot of fun. Again, some great design work in here, some fun performances, uh, some you know, some surprisingly good effects and costuming that in, in many ways, despite the budget, despite the time period, you know, it, I mean, it, it feels very ahead of its time. Um, the ending's pretty solid, though part of me still thinks that Scotland should have surrendered and become a breeding colony for Mars. I think, <laughs> I think Naya, ultimately, she made a good show of force. She was busting out just a lot of just cold facts on these poor earthlings. Uh, so uh, maybe they should have gone in the other direction, but still it's hard to, hard to argue with a solid ending. That scene where she explains about the negative condensity is just, yeah. <laughs> oh, so much quality techno babble in this one. It's like, I, I wonder, I, is there still techno babble of this quality in sci-fi films today? I don't know. I mean, I feel like unfortunately the direction has gone more into just like not saying as much or Mm. trying to make it more at least semi-realistic or plausible or just referencing things that have no relationship to real words, you know, that might as well be magic. Yeah. Or you just, I guess nowadays you can, you see a lot of the the casual invocation of quantum mechanics or nanobots, and that explains yeah. everything. They're like, yeah, Tony Stark's uh, power armor, it's basically magic. It just melts away into nothing. It crawls inside a, I guess, like a little pocket in his skin or something. It comes back out again, <laughs> and then it's everywhere, and it's shooting rockets. Like, don't, don't, don't worry about it. It's just, it's quantum mechanics. It's nanobots. It, 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 it all works out. Don't worry. We, we, the carbon we nanotubes. 
<laughs> yeah, it's just carbon nan- nanotubes. That's all you need to know. But they didn't have that excuse uh, <laughs> back in the old days. You had to work a lot more to create quality techno babble. You had to come up with phrases like a perpetual motion chain reactor beam <laughs> or uh, the negative condensity. Oh, so good. All right, we'll go ahead and close it out here. But obviously, we'd love to hear from everyone out there. If you have thoughts on Devil Girl from Mars or any of the players in this in this film or or films in a similar genre, yeah, write in. We'd love to hear from you. If you have memories of catching this film on TV back in the day, uh, yeah, yeah, uh, we're always uh, always uh, interested to hear those stories. And in the meantime, yeah, we're primarily a science podcast with core episodes on Tuesdays and Thursdays. But on Fridays, we do Weird House Cinema here that's our time to set aside most serious concerns and just talk about a weird film I'll, i do blog posts about the, these episodes at samutamusic.com and if you use letterboxd that's l-e-t-t-e-r-b-o-x-d.com well uh you can find us on there our username is weird house we maintain a list of all the movies we've covered so far and sometimes we'll include a preview of what we're about to cover as well Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Every rivalry, every rematch, every rookie debut, every game revealed. The 2024 NFL schedule release presented by Verizon coming in May. Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL+. Plus. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Plus. Visit nfl.com slash schedule release to learn more. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com.